0: Before we begin then, let us all take a moment to remind ourselves how extremely fortunate we are to be here in the presence of the noble Triple Gem, to have a teacher, to guide us, the teaching, to see us through to the end. Let us remind ourselves that our presence here is with purpose, and one purpose alone, that is to cross this ocean of samsara, to free ourselves from suffering once and for all. And of course, as we do so to help others along the way, let us remind ourselves that as we take a moment to pay homage to to the most magnificent one, it is also a pledge that we take upon ourselves an oath A solemn promise to ourselves to do exactly as our great teacher taught us to follow in his footsteps and to achieve the final destination that he wanted us all to get to nothing else would be of use nothing else would be a veneration towards the supremely enlightened one so reminding ourselves of all of this Let us now bring our palms together in veneration of the most glorious one, the most magnificent one, the undefeated one. He who is beyond compare and he who is like none other in the 10,000 world systems and beyond. He is our teacher, our master, our guide, our father. let us bring our hands together in veneration of the supremely enlightened one the fully awakened one our lord buddha namo
1: tassa bhagavato arahato sammā sambuddhas namo tassa bhagavato arahato sammā sambuddhas as
0: we proceed and progress on this path it is very important that we don't forget where we started just as It is important what our destination is, and to be mindful of that. It's very important that we don't forget where we started. All of this is a practical transformation that is happening in each and every one of us. So here we have come for change. If you don't opt-in for change, then it is in vain that we are all here. That change, you need to acknowledge, appreciate, understand, and also be mindful that there are others who are just making a start. This is not an academic venture, but rather a personal adventure. It's not a journey we've been on before. That is why I prefer to call it an adventure. It's got to be fun and exciting at the same time. It's got to be enlightening. Otherwise, you are heading in the wrong direction. All this while being mindful of where you all started. Now, I mean that in particularly today because I, 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 I want to ensure that you have these checkpoints from time to time. Just have a think about some of the things we used to talk about. For example, the values that make us human, the virtues that we should wear with pride. If not for those, then this is purely an academic exercise. If you are not perceived, if you are not seen as a blessing to be around, then you cannot be the child of a blessed one. Someone's a blessing to be around when their presence only brings others joy, upliftment, ease, comfort. Because often I have seen people who claim to be very diligent in their their practice. But, you know, they're not the kind of people you want to be around. Because their words are harsh, they think nothing of other than themselves. They'll have whatever they want, regardless and despite whatever harm or damage it might do to others so you know if if that is still happening, then it's important to remind ourselves that this is not this is not Nibbana. so now, of course, I cannot say what's happening in your lives, but I can only ask you to take a checkpoint from time to time and to make sure that you are better human beings than when you first started on this journey. That is why we need to go back to our beginnings. See who you were then and see who you are now. Amongst you will be children. We are all children, aren't we? We are all children. Today, you might have your parents with you. Today, you may not have your parents with you, but nonetheless, we are all children. Are you a better child today than when you started this journey? See, here are, this is the acid test. Or this is the litmus test. Are you a better child than when you started this journey? Those of you who still have your parents, I urge you to check with yourselves. How do you treat your parents now? Now, this might seem like a stark difference from what we discussed last week. Last week, we talked about the clinging aggregates. And today I'm talking about being a good child to your parents. That is a means to this end. Not this is a means to that end. If you allow that to be a means to this end, then this will eventually be a means to that end. That is how it works. For someone who is not, uh, within air quotes, a white man, not the traditional, conventional white man, you know what I'm talking about. A man or a person with pure virtues, that kind of white man. Hmm? Someone who is a white man is a man who will get to Nibbana, and someone who practices the path to Nibbana is one who becomes white by the day. So, you don't need fair and lovely for that, you just need the Dhamma. But I ask you, this is a, a good checkpoint, and we need to do this from time to time. I do this myself, and I encourage my students to do the same. I ask my students, are you, are you just a delight for your teachers to help and guide and instruct and advise? Are your teachers still complaining? If they did, are they still? That they're headstrong, that they, once they decide they want to do something, that's all they'll do they're not willing to budge, they're not willing to change their mind, they're not willing to change their their ways, it's my way. If that is still the way it is, then nothing has happened within you. So is Nibbana working for you? You are the person to be asking that question, and you are the person to be answering that question. So are you a better child? By a better child, I don't mean those days when my parents used to tell me off. I used to get really upset. I used to run into my room and cover myself under my blankets and I used to cry. But now I don't do that. Is that because I don't care about my parents anymore? I don't care about what they say? That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying, are you a better child? What do your parents tell about you now? Go and ask them. You can ask them. Ask your mother. Mother, what do you think about me? How often have you actually asked that question from your parents? Have you ever asked that question from your parents? Mother, what do you think about me? Do you think I'll be rich or will I be pretty? That's not what I mean here. What do you really think about me, mom? Am Am I a good son? Am I a good daughter? And, I, and you should say, you know, just ignore the fact that you love me to the moon and back. Just ignore that for a second and answer honestly. If you had to have me again, would you? If you had a choice, would you have me? As your child? Am I kinder to you? Am I more gentle in my ways to you? He might, she might ask you, what's this all of a sudden? Why are you asking me all these weird questions? You can answer in, a very simp- in very simple words. You can say, well, I'm trying this thing called Nibbana, and I want to check whether it's working. That's it. So she might say, but hang on, with Nibbana, is it not like you go got to isolate yourself somewhere and meditate? Yeah, well, there is that type, but then the monastery that we go to, that's not how they check whether we are on the path to Nibbana. They ask us, are we better children to our parents? So, I ask you this question today. So the Swami Nuhansai wanted me to check in with you. Am I a better child? Would you consider me to have, to have become more genial, to have become more, more benevolent, to have become more kind and generous and more gentle? Do you feel that I'm working on my flaws and I'm improving myself? Am I a better son? Ask this question. Walk up to your husband. Walk up to your wife. Have a check-in. Ask them how do you feel about me? Do you like my new makeup? Hmm? That is what you used to ask. Now you can ask him Do you actually like my new makeup? How I've made myself up? Do you like that? Am I a better spouse? Am I kinder to you? Am I more patient than I used to be? You can say, remember those days when you asked me to do this, do the work, or tend to the chores, or do the homework with the children? I used to get all angsty and very agitated. Mm? And I'd say, "Why, why is it me today? Is it not your turn today? Why are you always asking me to do all these things? Why can't you do them for once? And if some, if you If something happened, you know, maybe perhaps you made a mistake. I'd not be very forgiving those days. Am I still the same? Don't assume that you have become better. Ask. Because the worst thing to assume is how good you are. Chances are you'll always get a good answer, or the answer that you like to hear. How good are you? Very, right? Nessa when we talk to our people, Swami says, Anagarikas and so on, you know, oftentimes either myself or Guruhandru or whoever, when we receive advice, we'll always hear the bad stuff. Bad stuff meaning the great stuff, meaning what's wrong with us? How we need to work on ourselves, how we need to improve. And then in the same breath I'd say. You do know why I'm not talking about how good and great you are, right? Because you already know that. When you, when you try to, you know, say there's a kid who's done something wrong. You bring the kid over, you ask him, ask him to come over and say, why did you do that? And then they have an answer to give. Because of this. That's what they're really saying is, I'm, I'm actually good. Why are you telling me off? I'm good. So then you say, no, but you did this. You should have asked your brother before you take before you took it. Yes, but I I did that last time. See, every time you try and fault someone, they'll always come up with why they're good. So, in other words, you don't need to tell them why they're good. Everyone knows that. What people don't know is what's wrong with them. That is what people need help with. So, walk up. Never assume how good you are. Always ask. So. Go to your husband, ask him. Maybe the first time you're having this conversation. It might be, might well be. This is why most relationships don't last, because people don't, people don't talk with each other. And don't send him a WhatsApp message. Honey, am I good? You'll probably get an emoji back. Face palm. Don't do that. Ask, to, you know, find the right moment to do so. Not right after you've cajoled him. Hmm? Not right after you've made him a fancy meal or something. You know, just… when you're just about average. Go and ask. Not Maybe not just after you've upset him either, or her. I say him, her, you know, either. But do go and ask. Check in. What do you think about me now? Have I improved? The, the, you know, the five people who associate you the most, are a good indicator of whether you're progressing in the Dhamma. So ask them. Because if you came and asked me, all I can say is, you're the best person I've ever seen. Because when you come here, you offer flowers, you worship like, you know, it's the last worship you're going to do, right? and your devotion and your commitment and all that is just like I've never seen anyone so devoted. So, if you ask me in that environment, all I can say is, wow, you know, are you even human? But in your natural environment, you're natural. So, when you're natural, ask them. Who else might you ask? You can ask your colleagues. Particularly you know, if you were someone who used to get angry a lot. Now you know. That's why I say go back to your beginnings. If you are someone who used to always be on edge. Check in with some people. We used to do this. Remember? A long time ago. And then we started talking about the f- five clinging aggregates. We used to do this. I used to ask you, go and check in, do some homework, go and check in with the five people you associate the most and ask them how you're doing, how you're progressing. Let's not forget that. That's the best test that you can give yourself. Now, if you were here, if you lived here and in the monastery, you can come and ask the Swami Nasis because now you're in your natural environment. But when you're at home, when you're among your colleagues, when you're with your friends, ask them. Some friends will say, uh, you know what, you just, you. You have no taste anymore. You just, I don't know what's going on with you. What's what's wrong with you? You seem to have, a, I don't know, what's wrong with you? You should probably go a day or something. Some will say like that. Others might say, you know, yeah, you're, I, I find it easy to work with you now. People will say this. Or some will say, you know, you haven't changed a bit. You're the same person I know when we when we first met. So I don't know why you're even asking me this question. One thing you can ask them is you can even be very specific when you ask them. Give me three things that you think. I ought to change about myself. You know, these are these are things these are these are things that we do in the workplace. Like you learn this for management classes and training and so on. Three things that I can do about to change myself. But we never use them in, you know, in and amongst family. Why not? What's the deal? What, what three things would you like me to change about myself? What three things would you like me to improve on? You know, some really good questions to ask. Because if you like, to have, if you like the people around you to be happy, you can't give them what you want. You're gonna to have to ask them what they want. So ask them what would you like, what would they like you to be? How might they like you to be? Ask them. You're someone who needs who who should be able to change on demand. I'm not saying change for the bad, but change for the better. If they say, you know. Those days we used to go and go to the movies, but you don't come with me anymore. I don't know why that is. Uh, you know, be be sensible about some of the requests that might come when you ask this question. Yeah, in fact, be more specific. I, am I am I a nicer person to be around? Do you do you enjoy being with me? Is it am I am I gentle? Am I kind? Do you think do you think that, or do you feel that you know I'm just very mean? Do you think I still get very angry? Because I remember once you told me that you know. I need to control my temper. Huh? Do you still feel like that? Or do you think things have changed about me? You can ask this question. I ask this question from my teachers and from the community that I'm in. I, my question is, who do you get to ask this question from? you got to put yourself there. Go you and ask. Now, whether you ask or not, I, Even if, it, if you, even if you feel that it's... It's very difficult, you know, going that mile is just, I don't know, too difficult for me. At least ask this of yourself. You know, who are you when no one's watching? Remember that part? Who are you when no one's watching? Are you proud of who you are when no one's watching? Or are you ashamed of who you are when no one's watching? Ask yourself. The whole point of this is the dhamma should change you, should transform you internally. If it's not doing that, then something about your approach is wrong. That's all it is. I mean, would you not rather find this out sooner than later? Wouldn't you? Because you're coming here every every week, every Saturday, you're here. Some of you, every Sunday, you're there. Every poya day, you're here, right? This is a huge investment that you're making, is it not? I'm not just talking about the expense of getting here. I'm talking about this is a big part of your life you're spending here. You know, one-seventh of your week you're here. You think that's a small amount? One-seventh of your life you're here. That's no small deal. That's a big deal. This is an investment that you're making. In fact, it's one of your... What holidays do you get at the end of the week? You know, one of those days that they let you out of prison. Yeah? So, when they give you that opportunity to step outside prison for a week, for for a day or two days, you're spending one of those days here. I urge you, make sure that you're making, you're getting your return on investment. Your life is a project. If it were your business, how would you deal with it? Hmm? If your life was your business, if that was your project, how would you deal with it? You would you check your accounts at the end of every day. At least you know every month, have a check-in. Am I going the right way? Am I doing the right things? From one, you know, once in a while, you get a chance to give away something. Sometimes I I, I do this test with with. Uh, with some of our younger monks or Anagarikas and so on. Like sometimes, this, something like this can happen. Say someone's got a voice recorder or a set of earphones. And when their parents come to visit them, they'll bring them a new pair, a new voice recorder or a new headset or something, which they used to listen to the Dhamma sermons. So now they've got the old pair and they've got the new pair. So now they think, you know, as all good people do, I should, I should, I can give one of these to someone. Yeah? Now I watch which one they go on and give. Is it the old one or the new one? They both work. Which one? Which one would you give? Don't answer, but answer. Hmm? You, have a, you have a bottle that you bring your water in. You have the old bottle, which is still a bottle, it carries water, it works fine. It doesn't leak or anything, it so works fine, just fine. And then someone gives you a new bottle. Now if you feel like, I don't have any, I need, don't need two bottles, I could give one to someone. Which one do you give? Do you give the old one or do you give the new one? Tough question, isn't it? But the answer is very simple. Anya hilabubhanisa. Anya Nibbāna These are some really strong points in life where you can test how you are internally. What is your inclination? What is your tendency? Is your tendency towards Nibbāna? Is your tendency towards letting go? Or is your tendency towards grasping? and accumulating for yourself. Do you think of yourself all the time? We talked about altruism, remember? Long time ago. Think of others without thinking about yourself. You might wonder, now so I'm not in a world where there are no others and there is no me, you're talking about altruism. What's the whole point of that? If there are no others and there's no me, then why are we talking about, why are we talking about charity, giving to others? Your previous statement does not agree, is not congruent with your, with your second statement. That doesn't make any sense. You say, care about others, and then you say, in the same breath, there are no others. What are you talking about? Yes, there are no others, but you have to give to others. <laughs> there is no one to give to. That is why it's not about Giving to someone, it's about letting go. It's about giving up. That's what it's about. Giving up. Not giving to, but giving up. Because when you give to, there's a question. What is the question? Who to? But when you give up, is there a question? Who to? No. Yeah, if, when, once you give up, Who takes it is immaterial to you. But when you give to, it matters to you who you're giving to. Doesn't it? So if it's someone's birthday party, you go there, you take a present with you, and you give it to that person. But if you can give up, now let anyone come and take it. It matters not who takes it. See, if you have become more able, to give up. Are you able to give others the better part of whatever you might have? If you have two of them, are you able to give the better one? Are you able to give the new one? Are you able to give the more sophisticated one? Are you able to give them the newer model? The newer version? The one that you might otherwise enjoy and would like to keep for yourself? When you cut a cake in half, hmm, two brothers, or brother and sister, it's time to share. Right? By mistake, you thought you were going to split it in half, but by mistake, one half is bigger than the other. Let's say it's mistake. Sometimes mistakes happen, sometimes mistakes are made. Let's say it is by mistake. Right? Now you're left with, you, can't, you can no longer call them halves because they're not half. You have the bigger part and you have the smaller part. Now, you're supposed to give. You're supposed to give. So you give. But which one? Makes all the difference. Which one? Which one do you give? You can test it all the time. Say you have your Pratkad, your prayer mat with you. And someone comes, a new Anagarika comes and they need a prayer mat, because they are going somewhere. So, there's, there are new prayer mats, there's your prayer mat, and you have to give one. Which one do you give? Do you take the new one and give them the old one? Or do you keep the old one and give them the new one? Now, I'm not saying that You should somehow, yeah, again, that shouldn't be your way. That shouldn't be your, you know, like giving that new one. Don't become the one that gives the new one. Don't become that either. I'm the one who always gives the new one. Because then again, you've, you've created your, for yourself an identity. That's not what I mean. I'm, I'm talking about the internalization of this. How do you feel about this internally? Because there are there are some who might who might do it and then you know, they'll go around telling other people. You know, I'm the one who always gives anyone. Don't be that guy. Hey, whenever there are then there's there's a bigger piece and a smaller piece. I'm the one who always gives the bigger piece. In fact, you've given very little then. It's your job is not that. It's not about showing off. It's not about showing other people that you have become better you have improved, you are more gentle, more kind, more charitable. This is not a display. You are not a showcase. This is purely an internal transformation. And I am saying, you know, use this as a check for yourselves. Are you a better mother? Are you a better husband? Are you a better father? Are you a better daughter? Are you a better son? Are you a better child? Are you a better colleague? Are you a better friend? Are you a better citizen? At work, how do you exert yourself? How do you do your job? Are you, you know, when, when someone approaches you and they need your help, they have come for your service, how do you feel about them? Do you feel that they are just, just another botheration or do you feel that they have, they have come here and given you an opportunity to serve? How do you feel? When you're on the road, stuck in traffic, how do you feel in those situations? Someone pulls up in front of you, oh, let's say there's only one parking space left, two cars approach the car park at the same time. And the film is in 10 minutes. There's not enough time to go and... Oh, you don't watch films now? Oh, ah, okay, okay. All right, supermarket. You have to go there still, right? The supermarket closes in 10 minutes. And if you don't park now, there are no other parking spots available. If you don't park now, your chances are you are not going to be able to do your full shopping list tonight. So, only one parking spot, two cars. In that moment, you don't know who the other guy is. So, this is not giving two. You don't know who the other guy is. And he's never going to come back and appreciate. You'll never meet this, this person again. That those are the chances. What are the chances? They'll not they even they might even not step to say thank you. Perhaps as they as you give them a the chance to to park, to pull up into the car park, into the parking slot, they might frown at you. Or they might even give you a look to say, Yeah, that's what you should have done. I got here first. Is that all right with you? When, you? when you do a good deed, must it be appreciated? Hmm? How do you feel? It's easy to nod while you're here. I'm saying, check. <laughs> Not here, don't check here. Check it when you're there, in your natural environment. When you do a good deed, must it be appreciated? Must someone say thank you when you give something to them? Otherwise, how do you feel? So do you do it for the thank you? Do you do it for the smile? Do we do it for the appreciation? Or do we do it because it's what's got to be done? These are the things you need to check. Because Nibbana is very practical. If it's not practical, then it's not Nibbana. You need to use your life as the measure of how well you are progressing. The lab of life is everything. In that lab, in, that, in, in, in your life, you have to go and check, ladies and gentlemen, how well you are progressing in the Dhamma. I can give you a question paper with all of the questions that, that, to cover all the things that we've talked about in the Dhamma, all those Dhamma points, you know, what are the five aggregates, what are the clinging aggregates, what's the manifestation, what's separation, what's anicca, what's dukkha, what's anatta, Hmm. What are the five faculties? I can give you a question paper, you can answer all of them and get hundred out of hundred. Doesn't mean you are any closer to Nibbana. If that were true, then the people who types at the Tripitaka should be Buddhas, shouldn't they? Not just Arahatta Buddhas, but Sammasambuddhas. But that is not so. Your internal transformation is so, so, so important. That's why we go on about that in this place. When Even when Guru Hanuman talks to you, talks to us, talks to all of us, he's always talking about who have you become internally. What's more important is who are you becoming rather than where are you getting. Who you are becoming is the best indicator of where you're getting. Who are you becoming? So. Go back to your basics, go back to the beginning, go back to your origins and ask yourselves, who was I when I started? Am I better now? Now, we get to hear lots of stories of, of, the, of those transformations. You know, a lot of people come and talk to us. Now, these days, we are doing the, uh, the Siyumagar, not the Siyumagar, the DNA program, Maharavan, DNA program. And we are hearing a lot from the parents of the dear children, how the the, the children have changed beyond their wildest imaginations. How they have become more respectable towards them. Children who never used to worship their parents, now they regard them like gods. So the parents don't send them here because they want to be respected. No, I don't think that's why parents send them here. But parents send them here because they want their children to understand the value of life, the virtues, morality, and the things that will help them and guide them to their own liberation. So we get to hear those stories, and that, those are the things that impress us. You can come here and give a, a lecture on the Dhamma. Don't let this impress you, by the way. When I come here and we talk about the Dhamma, right? I can pick this up and talk to you about this for the next two hours, about how through this you can attain nibbana. Don't let that impress you. I'll be the first person to say that. Don't let that impress you. Don't let my knowledge of the Dhamma impress you. That is not to impress. You should only be impressed. What is an impression, by the way? An impression is when you think, I want to become like that. That's an impression. So, don't let the knowledge of the Dhamma, or the way I expound the Dhamma, impress you. That's not what should impress you. If you are impressed, be impressed by who you see see has become here. In the way we deal with you, in in, in, in our approach, in the way we work together, Allow those things to impress you. When you come to the monastery and you work with the Swami says you spend time with them, the Anagarikas and the, the Anagarika Mahathiris, Right? What you should be impressed by, because I mean, how often do you get to hear sermons from the Anagarika You Barely at all. Sometimes you might get some counselling sessions with the Anagarika Mahatmas, but from the Anagarika you hardly at all. But are you not impressed? That impression doesn't come from the knowledge of the Dhamma. That impression comes from who they have become in your dealing with them. That is what should impress you. So, always have that as your compass, your moral compass. Who have you become? Who are you becoming? Are you impressed by yourself? Are you proud of who you have become? Allow the Dhamma to make that internal transformation within yourselves. Without that, None of this is worth, I mean, it might be better just to go and do something better with our saturdays. Because this is a huge investment you are making in your lives. You know, while you are here, you are not even engaging in merits. You are by listening to the Dhamma, but there are other forms of merit that you can do quite easily, which you are not doing while you are here, because you are investing. This is for for a better return. And that return, you need to check your getting by checking that internal transformation. So if ever, when you go back after the program, go and check with your parents. Am I a better daughter? Check with your friends. Am I a better friend? Am I more gentle? Am I more kind? Am I nice to be with? Or is it nice to be without me? Which one? Some homes, it's like that, isn't it? How the children have left. Thank God. See, become a child where the parents go, Oh, they've returned. So happy. It's like when, when the parents come back home, young kids, I miss you, I miss you, I miss you. How about you can become a child where when you come back home, your mother is like, Do I see Do I see Do I see <laughs> Not just because you are their daughter. Not just because. Because any mother would say that, but not just because. Because you are a blessing to the family. In some homes, you know, the children play a much bigger part <clears throat> than some of the adults at home in terms of and you know, having that influence that positive influence on the household in some homes it's like that we know this we've seen this in some homes you know the 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 son is the is the spiritual leader at home <clears throat> in some homes you know sometimes the adults at home will say you know we shouldn't do this. We shouldn't discuss this while while Buddha is at home. He won't like it. In some homes it's like that. Buddha won't like it. Our son won't like it. He won't approve of this. So let's not talk about it. here. Let's wait until he goes to the monastery. Then we talk about it. You know, become someone who when people... When, when, who, when you are around them, people feel that they should be good. Become that kind of person. You know, if, if you are, but not because you're a policeman. Then also people want to be good. Because otherwise, you know, they're getting in trouble. That's not what I mean. Be good, so good. That when you are around you, you exude that into other people they begin to sense that you, you give off some really good vibes you know you're a person when, when when you're around people feel that they can't get up to mischief they have to be good. Have you not had people like that in your lives? Hmm? Some personalities when they were around you, you never felt that you should you you could do some of the things that you would have done when they were not there. Now it might have been a teacher sometimes. Perhaps you know in, in during your school days, there were some teachers when they walked into the classroom. Right? The classroom became like a temple. Right? Not not because the teacher was strict they might have been but that's not because of that it's because you feel such respect towards that teacher such you know such a feeling of of devotion to that teacher and you know that this teacher cares so much that he or she was so so virtuous that anything less would be an insult to them would be an offense to them so so therefore you conducted yourself in a way that would be Exemplary. That would be that would be appreciated by them. See, if you can become that kind of person, imagine an arahant walked into the room right now. Or let's say here, I don't think much will change, but let's say in your homes, like on an average day, right? On an average day, see, say like, you just come back home from work. The children, children have returned from school. Okay, just imagine that situation at home and you're cooking something like for dinner, maybe someone's watching TV, someone's browsing the net just to find out something, right? And then Arahant walks into the house. What are some of the things you will continue doing? What are some of the things you will say, you know what? We can't do this now. We have to stop. Not just because you have to give him a chair, go and sit down and listen to him and attend to him. That's not what I mean. He's there. He's just there. He's in the house. Okay, he's come to stay a day with you. Hmm? Now he's in the house. How might you conduct yourself? You want to be someone who an arahant likes to be around. So therefore, you you try to put on your best behavior. And that is a blessing. Because as you do, as you do this, you become better within yourselves. So therefore, their presence alone can sometimes be enough to stop you from doing something that you would not have done otherwise, as well as to encourage you to do some good and meritorious deeds and just to be a better person. So if you can become someone like that, when you are around, you bring out the best in people. That's a, that's a good goal to have in life. I want to bring out the best in people. Again, this might sound like management speak. Because in the companies, in the, in, at the workplace, we talk about, you know, bring out the best in people. right? I, that is one sense of the word, but I mean it in a different sense. Become a spiritual leader, so when you're around, you bring out the best in people. They, are, they become holier they become more virtuous. They become more moral. That's a great ambition to have. But for that, you have to be like that. You have to be virtuous, you have to be exemplary, you have to be a moral person. That's when you can get other people to treat you the same. So we work on the Dhamma to be able to get to that point. We, we try to understand the Dhamma to help us to make that transformation within ourselves. But that has to be the test for all of you, for me and for all of us. Who have I become internally? Who am I transforming into? Use anything else as a, as a test and I dare say you will fail. If you use anything else as a test, how well you can explain the Dhamma, for instance. Sometimes there are people who come here, right? They spend some time with us, they explain the Dhamma like Einstein would explain E equals MC squared and then two weeks later they're gone. They've left. That has happened. So therefore, how well you explain the Dhamma is not really a strong enough, a good enough test of how well the Dhamma has internalized within you. The best check, the best test is who have you become internally? Your your internal transformation. Are you a better person to be around? Are you a gentle person? Are you a kind person? You know, a kind person is a person who does not suffer internally. If you vex a lot, it's very difficult to be kind. If you vex a lot, you know what I mean by that, right? If you vex a lot, if you suffer internally a lot, then it's very difficult to be kind. It's very difficult to be gentle. Because what is what is what is to be kind when would someone say you are kind or when have when would you say that someone else is kind you say when someone's you say someone is kind when they are understanding when for, when for instance you are in trouble or when you need something they will go the extra mile they will make some sacrifices for you that's when you'll say that they're kind won't you That's when you say they're kind. They make sacrifices. Things that you struggle to give up, they give up easily. They make adjustments. They accommodate you. That's when you say they're kind. Is it not? Say you walk up to someone's house, like a friend, and you have nowhere to go. Okay? And they've only got one bedroom. So they'll say, you know what? If you've got nowhere to go, you can come. We'll sleep outside. Or we'll sleep in the living room. You come and take the bed. It's fine. Then you say, oh, yeah, those people, they're so kind. They're so charitable. They're so, they're so giving, so generous. People say that someone's kind, someone's gentle, someone's generous. When they are in a spot of bother, when they are in trouble, when they need, when they can't accommodate, when they can't adjust, someone adjusts on their behalf and makes life livable for them. That is when you are considered to be kind. Think about the last time you thought someone was kind. And don't you think that is what happened? You needed something. You couldn't get it for yourself. Someone accommodated you. Someone adjusted themselves. Someone went an extra mile to help you be more comfortable. That was when you thought someone was kind. Say, maybe you are going to a sermon. Right? And someone sees you walk in here. And they stop there, they, they pull up, they open the, the, the window and they say, you go to the monastery, do you want to hop in? I'll take you there. So they were already, you know, the backseat, they were already what, maybe two people there, or maybe three people there. And you know what they did? One guy sat on the other guy's lap and created a space so that you could get into the car. And then what would you say? You know, they're so kind. They're so generous. What did they really do? They made adjustments. They accommodated you. In fact, they absorbed your pain. They absorbed your pain and made life comfortable for you. They made life livable for you. Because when you are in discomfort, when you are being inconvenienced, when you are in trouble, when you need help, You want someone else to make that change on your behalf. Maybe say on another day, right, after, for for lunch, right, you're in, in, in the queue, and you're the last person in the queue, and just before you is the person who's going to be served the last spoonful of rice. So say they've served They've been served, and then you walk up and you realize, no more rice. And then they say, wait, there's more in the kitchen. Rice is being cooked. We'll serve it in, just give us 20 minutes. And the person before you says, you know what, I can wait. You have this. What will you say about this person? Hmm? Very kind. That's what you'd say, right? He's a very kind person very generous. So what you're really saying is, when I'm in pain, there's someone who accommodates that, who absorbs that, who adjusts themselves on my behalf. That is what you're saying. But can they do that if they are also waxing about the same thing? If someone wants something more than you do, then they can't make that sacrifice on your behalf when you, when you need it. Yeah, they can't make that sacrifice on your behalf when you need it, if they want it more than you do. So how do you become someone who is kind? By becoming someone who doesn't need a lot. By becoming someone who needs little, who wants little. The less you want, the more kind that people will think you are. Or not just think, but the more kind that you will be. Because when you want just very little, when you want barely anything, just enough for your sustenance, you are freely willing to give everything you have to other people, to make other people's lives comfortable. And then they feel you are very kind. So do you see then, the Dhamma is to help us to be a blessing to others. So we, can, so we can make adjustments. We can accommodate other people's wants and needs. We can shape our lives so that other people are able to live better, happier, fuller lives. That is why I say, go back and check with your husband. Check with your wife. Check with your parents. Am I kinder? So Now, is that not the best test of whether the Dhamma has seeped in and made a change within you? Because if you want more things, if you, if you are someone who is full of needs and wants, particularly the wants rather than needs, if you are someone who is full of wants, you are always pestering and bothering other people. When you want something, if you are always someone who demands it. Does anyone like someone who is always demanding? No. Nobody likes a person who is always demanding. I want this. You give them that. No, I want the other one. You give them that also. I want the, the, the other one also. They are always demanding. No one likes a person. no one likes someone who's always very demanding. That's why the Buddha said, as monks, never ask, because people don't like them. Which is true. Never ask. When we go on alms round, we don't ask, we stand there. We don't go there and say, <clears throat> We don't go there and clear our throat and say, because that's kind of saying, hello, I'm here, can't you see? We don't do that. Arms round, going on arms round, he's not actually asking, he's actually giving. It's merit on wheels or on legs, it's a takeaway. How is going on arms round a takeaway? You can order your pizza, can't you? Hmm? You can order your pizza, takeaway. Are you, are you take away by you know, drive through, or you order your pizza and they send it home? How about if you could order a monk? And can you believe how many tourists these people are? They can order a monk to their home, so that they can give some something and earn some merits. Even if it's just a spoonful of sugar, they earn merits, sugar, let them earn merits, we go on arms round. Can you imagine? I mean, I, I you know I don't go on arms round, we don't go on arms round because we have nothing. You make sure of that. Hmm? You, you make our arms round just you know one that is done just for the sake of an arms round. it's not something that I have to do because I have to do it's something i I do because i I can do it. I get to do not I have to do. say when we go on an arms round and I don't get anything
1: hmm?
0: <clears throat> If someone of you lived around that area and you got news of this that Swami said today doesn't have anything for. For, for an afternoon, what might you do? If you got the chance, you'll invite the Swami Jose home. Hmm? You will give them a feast, wouldn't you? That's what you're like. So we don't do it because we have to do it. We do it because we want to do it. See that, now that, that is why an arms round is not, is not asking, it's giving. it's giving people a chance. Some don't see it that way though, I mean very few, but I'm sure one of these days we're going to meet someone. I remember on one occasion we we were there and someone had something to offer, having a yogurt or something, and the gentleman brought the yogurt. So they were a bunch of guys, just a bit rowdy, They they didn't like so I mean as they go in on an arms round. For whatever reason. And so this man he came and opened the yogurt and he was putting it into the arms bowl. <laughs> and then one of the guys said, No, oh, you can't just offer it and you have to open it and put it into the arms bowl also. How lazy these people are. <laughs> I mean, you get all sorts. So far, you know, nothing, 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 anything more than that has happened. But... Even if it did, I wouldn't tell you, don't worry. Because I know what you will do then. You will make sure that I don't get to go on Armstrong. I know what you bunch are like. You will make sure that I don't get to go on Armstrong. So don't worry, I won't tell you. Hmm? I'll only tell you the good stuff. So you can rejoice and engage in the merits. So we don't go demanding, it is forbidden for us as monks to demand, we can't make demands. I can make this demand, work on your salvation or else don't come here. I can make that demand, but I can't make a demand, look at this robe, can't you give me a new one, I can't make that demand. See what's for lunch today. Is this what you expect us to eat? Hmm? Is this what you offer us as devotees? Dal curry and rice today. Rice and dal curry the next day. Are you fulfilling your responsibilities as devotees? Is this how you treat us? I can't make those demands. There's no place for demand here you can only be deserving that you can be you can be deserving so that people feel that you deserve so then they give but we don't take we don't take just because we need it we take it because it gives you a chance to give i mean proof of that Is when we go on Armstrong. Now you know on Mondays and Tuesdays we go on Armstrong to the Sudaminisa village. Those of you who live around here get that opportunity. That's not because there's no food at the monastery. There is. But it's because you know you, you can order a monk. Home delivery. That's nice, isn't it? Home delivery. So they come up to you and hold their arms bowed, giving you a chance to engage in some merits. Again, it's a giving, it's not really a taking. In this sasana, there is no taking. There's only giving, because we give up. Ultimately, we give ourselves up. So this, all this all this giving is, is a training to ultimately give everything up and give ourselves up. That is what this training is for. You start by giving the things you can, not giving to, but giving up. Hmm? So therefore, you know, when, you ha- when, you, if you, when we talk about give to, you have to have someone to come and take it. You don't have to. That's why you can have everything at home. Remember, I always say, you know, in Buddhist philosophy, it's not about letting go. Buddhism is not about letting go. You don't have to say, okay, take it. You don't have to do that. You just have to give up, not give to. Give up. Have everything, but want nothing. That is where you need to be. Have everything, but want nothing. Because if... You only suffer not because you have nothing. People think they suffer because they have nothing. People suffer because they want everything. So if you want nothing, then it matters not whether you have anything or have everything. Physically, you may be able to enjoy some comforts. Or rather than enjoy, let me say, experience some comforts. But mentally, it doesn't bother you at all. But if you want something, then having it or not having it, either of these two states will always bring you pain. Because when you have it, you're always fearful. Yeah? Might I lose it? Might someone take this away from me? Might it break? If you don't have it, again, you're in grief. So you're always on either of these two sides, either in fear or in grief. But if you don't want it, Then, if it's there, it's there. If it's not there, it's not there. That's it. Simple as that. You know, when you... If ever you get a chance to meditate... Now, we meditate all the time. I'm I'm meditating right now. Meditation is not here at our monastery. It's not something you have to do while you're sat cross-legged. We meditate all the time. Meditation is practicing the Dhamma. As I preach, I practice the Dhamma. As you listen, you have to practice the Dhamma. But whenever, I mean, even if you get a chance to actually sit and sit down, or walk in, or do some contemplation, do some reflection. Try and ask yourself the question: What are some of the things that I still want in my life? What about, What is your list of wantings? Have they grown in number, or have they reduced in number? Do you want them as fiercely as you wanted them back then? Would you go any length to get what you want? Are there certain things that are still like that? Have this check within your mind. It could be anything from people to things, material things, to experiences, to how you want other people to feel about you, even that. You know, sometimes you want people to think that you are a good person. Right, then you put up an appearance. If someone was was to think that you were not so good, not so gentle, then you that you you won't you won't be happy with that. No, he doesn't think highly enough of me. So I need to do something to make sure that he or she thinks highly of me. Yeah. Do you still want that? These are things you need to think about. Because whatever that is, is simply a source of fear and grief for you. You know, people are always in the process of I engage in, 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 in this process of making a rod for their own backs. That is, what, that is what we try and stop doing through the Dhamma. To stop making a rod for your own back. And you can't stop that when there are things you want. So that is why understanding this Dhamma is to help you free yourselves from, that, from those wantings, so that you are free from vexation, so that you are able to give up everything and anything on demand. You are able to give up. And then you become a gentler person or gentler, maybe a more gentle person, a kinder person, a more genial person, a more accommodating person, a better person to be around. You just become a blessing. Then they'll say, you are a blessed one. That is where we are getting. That is how we need to transform ourselves. Your understanding of the Dhamma is simply a means to an end. So I'll answer this question. That's fine. But this question should simply be a means to an end. Understanding the Dhamma should be a means to an end. That end is not becoming a professor in the Dhamma. Daruchiriya was not a professor in the Dhamma. He got to hear very little. That little transformed him. Before he became Daruchiriya, perhaps if you went and asked him for his you know, whatever he had, he, he he so he had branches of trees and that as his clothes. Perhaps if you asked that from him, then he would have maybe he would given it, but not very willingly. But if you I went and asked him for that after he transformed, having listened to the Dhamma, he would have given it up quite because he'd already given it up. All that was left is to give to. Given up had giving up had already happened. See if you can train your minds through the Dhamma. And have your minds ready by doing this. Have you given up everything so that all that is left to do is give to? That is where I want you to be. Everything you possess right now, everything that belongs to you, everything that own that you own. If you've already given up, then all that is left to do is to give to. So you don't have to have a boot sale at home or maybe you know, open your home up so that anyone can just come and take things away. You don't have to do that. What I'm saying is, if that were to happen, you should be okay with that. That's not to say if someone actually does that, don't call the police. <laughs> do call the police. But that's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is, mentally, you should have given up so that all that is left to do is give to. You don't need to hasten yourselves with the giving to part what needs to happen first is the giving up part. Your understanding of the Dhamma allows you to give up. If someone wants it, they'll come and take it. That is when the give to needs to happen. So the Dhamma is for that. Is that clear to everyone? I I, I only say this because that is the only part to Nibbana. That is the only way you know you're progressing in the Dhamma. So, the question is, the first question is, what is the difference between manifestation and separation? Manifestation is real. Separation is fake. Manifestation is all there is. Separation is all you perceive through an ignorant mind. Why know That's a very short answer. I'll try and elaborate. Manifestation is all there can be. When things manifest, an ignorant mind perceives a separation, a wise mind perceives manifestation. As manifestation is all there is and all that happens, the wise mind should only, should really, only perceive manifestation. But when the mind is ignorant, you don't perceive manifestation, but rather you perceive separation. But regardless of what you perceive, what's really happening there is manifestation. So let's take a, one or two examples and see if you can try and make sense of that. Now, take this flower, this list flower arrangement, for instance. See now, <clears throat> you see a floral arrangement, right? So there are little leaves, flowers, yellow flowers, blue flowers and so on. Now here you see, what can I call this, a bouquet? Is there a better word for it? A bouquet, flowers? I'll take this one. Now this was previously part of that. It came off. If what was here, if what was here was a fixed object, meaning this uh, was a fixed object, then you couldn't do this. If the bouquet was a fixed object, if this was a fixed entity, if this came as one, right? so it has to go as one, it came as one, it has to exist as one, then you wouldn't be able to do this, would you? So what is a bouquet? It's an arrangement of flowers, lots of flowers arranged in a, in a certain way. Now could I not rearrange this? Yeah, so you could move some of this. Now see, this is the blue one, I put it here. Take the yellow one and put it put it there. Hmm? Is this the same arrangement that was there before? No, now it's a different arrangement. So you've changed the arrangement. You've altered the arrangement. This is a different bouquet of flowers, you might say. What's different is a different arrangement. That's all there is different about it. So all there was, was an arrangement of flowers and all there is now is an arrangement of flowers. That is what there was, that is what there is now and that is what there will be. If you want, we can split it all up, separate it all out, right? And keep those individual flowers. And then you'd say, that's no longer a bouquet. Uh, You know, at some point this became a bouquet, right? So how many flowers do you need for a bouquet? Is this a bouquet? How about now? No How many flowers do you need when when do you start to see a bouquet if we if we said at if there has to be at least two flowers okay a minimum of two flowers a maximum of however many a minimum of two flowers must be there for a bouquet to happen Let that, tell me when you when the bouquet happens okay No? Not yet? Just a little bit more, Swaminas. Come on, Swaminas, you can do it. Huh? When does the bouquet happen? No? 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 No bouquet? No? No bouquet? If you were, if this, if this flower could speak, would it know when it was part of a bouquet? How about this one? No, neither of them would know, because they are there. They are just there. They're just there. But the two of them together, have you heard this saying? The whole is greater than the sum of its parts. There's a nice saying, the whole is greater, whole as in W-H-O-L-E, whole. The whole is greater than the sum of its parts, meaning this is a part, this is a part, okay? This is the sum of its parts. Now sum meaning the sum sum. This is the sum of these two parts. The whole is greater than the sum of its parts. Meaning, when these two parts come together and unite, now you see something that's not here. That is the bouquet. But there is no bouquet here. But there is. You perceive one. All there is are two flowers together. But that is not how you perceive this. You have been trained to perceive this as a bouquet. So, you know, once you put this like this, how you might even adjust it, right? Like maybe bend some of this like this, you know, just to make it look better, right? Maybe put this round the rows like this. Mm-hmm. So you, you will you will carry on adjusting it until it looks nice to you. Until you you look at it and go, hmm, that looks nice, yeah. Actually, uh, that's better. Where is the bouquet? These are just two flowers. What is this now? Two flowers. What is it now? Two flowers. But there is something more than two flowers here. In fact, imagine, ah, let's do this. If they knew I was going to pull all this apart, I don't think they would have bothered with all that. Now. Imagine there's a tree, a flower tree, a flower plant, and these two flowers were on the same plant, okay? So you had, you had it all, both coming from the same branch and they, and they were like this. Would you say this was a bouquet? No. But pluck these two flowers, take it to the florist, he puts them together, Puts a, you know, ties it up with a bit of string or something and then gives it to you, what do you call it now? Now you say it's bouquet. So on the plant it's not a bouquet, but pluck it, keep it in the same order, the same arrangement, tie it up with a bit of string and now it becomes a bouquet. How so? What changed about this? Nothing changed here. It was simply your perception. Because on the tree, it was just two flowers. You, you saw them as separate things on the tree. Yeah, you, on the tree, you just saw them, even if they came off the same branch, you still see them as two separate flowers. But after you pluck them and you keep them together and you tie them up, now they are the same distance apart as they were on the tree. And now you say, this is a bouquet. You know, where does this magic happen? That is what I am asking you. Yeah, okay? where does this magic happen? This magic happens in your mind. This unison happens in your mind. That's why I say, you know, the, the, the whole is greater than the sum of its parts. These are the parts. This is the sum of these parts. But you see something greater than that. You see a whole, not an H-O-L-E whole a whole you see something greater than the than the two of them together see let's take another example what is this and this hm okay and this and this another one of them right Or two more for good measure. So, what do you, what do you see? A circle, long stick, and four short sticks. Okay. Now, what do you see? Now, what do you see? Now, you see a stick man. You see that. I didn't do that. I just erase those sticks and then put them around this circle. So why are you seeing something that I am not trying to show you? That is because you perceive things as collections. Actually, more than collections, you see them as, as single units. That is how you see them. You see them as single units. You see, these two flowers, ladies and gentlemen, when put together, you, You can't help but seeing this as one unit. This becomes a single unit in your mind. But in fact, it's not. Scientists will tell you that you can keep on dividing this and you'll get atoms and electrons and protons and neutrons and they're all just together because of the energies that operate between them, between themselves. It's the energy that keeps them together. And then scientists might also say, well, matter is also ultimately energy, so all there is is energy. This is just a configuration of energy. Just a configuration of energy. A configuration, meaning an arrangement. An order. This is order. Order of energy. What is chaos then? When energy is dispersed. hmm? when when there is no order we say there is chaos do you remember when we watched the murmuration video right you saw the you saw the uh, say the pumpkin i don't know what you saw i can't remember i saw you saw that. but let's assume you saw a pumpkin and then we saw an ostrich <clears throat> when you saw the pumpkin you said there's order when you saw the ostrich you said there's order what about the time when the pumpkin was transitioned to the ostrich? What was there then? Chaos. At least in your mind that was chaos. You didn't, did you not see the pumpkin? Hmm? Or perhaps the ostrich? Did you not see the ostrich? You didn't give that a name, did you? You didn't give that a name because in your mind, you didn't see that as a a single unit. You thought one was transitioning into the other. But the truth is really each of these are in their own right, a configuration. The pumpkin is no more or less a configuration than an ostrich. And an ostrich is no more or less a configuration than a trich or an ospin. They're all just configurations. The fact that we haven't given them names is not their problem, it's our problem. Let's take the example of, let's do butterflies. Okay, so we have the butterfly, that's butterfly. <clears throat> the butterfly lays eggs. They do lay eggs, don't they? Yes. And from those eggs come before the caterpillar, the larva, cocoon. The larva. Yeah. What does the larva look like? Just a small thing like this.
1: Hmm?
0: Okay, just the larva. Then from that you get the, the caterpillar. What does a caterpillar look like? Caterpillar looks like this, doesn't it? <laughs> what does a caterpillar look like? Closer to, know, actually it's very different to that, isn't it? A caterpillar looks like... like that and then so the the cocoon is the thing that covers this yeah it is protecting the housing and then you go to the butterfly keep it simple long time before i learned biology i can't remember any of this now so right so now we have one two three four stages so i'll label them this is the caterpillar this is the larva these are the eggs And this is, just in case you might think it's something else, it's a butterfly. So we have the four stages of the butterfly's life cycle. Now a scientist would say, looking at that, that this is the life cycle of a butterfly. In fact, they might even say that this is the life cycle of a caterpillar. That's also fine. They might even say this is the life cycle of a larva, but they normally say this is the life cycle of a butterfly. Because it's butterflies that most people know. It's what everyone's seen, everyone's aware of, everyone's knowledgeable about. And everyone wants the butterfly. You know, no one's interested in the lava or the caterpillar. We just, we like to see butterflies. So we're all talking about how does something become such a beautiful creation of nature? Where does a butterfly come from? So when, to answer that question, they come up with this story. Now, the caterpillar becomes the butterfly is what science would teach us. When the caterpillar becomes the butterfly, what happens internally? There'll be some biological changes, some physical changes. There's what they call metamorphosis. So there's a change that happens in, inside, this, inside this creature. And it's, it grows wings and there'll be an internal in the body of the actual organism there'll be some changes and eventually you get to see the butterfly that comes out of the cocoon okay so it grows inside inside the cocoon is this so this this wing okay this this particular wing this one whose wing is it Is it the wing of the butterfly or the wing of the caterpillar or perhaps the wing of the larva? What were you normally inclined to say? The butterfly, right? But what if I told you that there was a part of the caterpillar's body that eventually went on to become the wing. Now, although now you see the wing as a... As a wing on the butterfly, previously it was some other part of the body of the caterpillar. Right now, when you're looking at the cat, at the butterfly, this wing, this so this is not a wing at this point. It's some some other appendage. Okay, this this part of the body has transformed into what we call today, as you look at the butterfly, a wing. This is simply a manifestation, meaning there's a rearrangement that has happened. So this is a rearrangement. If you took the caterpillar, now this might sound a bit gruesome, but if you took the caterpillar and did some chemical analysis, you'll find that the, this caterpillar is made of all the elements. This is organic chemistry. So you'll find there's carbon, there's hydrogen and oxygen and nitrogen and all the wonderful things that go into making a caterpillar. It's the very same elements, rearranged. See, this is that rearrangement that happens inside the cocoon. Because nothing goes into it and nothing comes out of it. So the only thing that can happen is a rearrangement. Doesn't that make sense? If nothing can go into it and nothing can come out of it, to see something different coming out to what went in, all that could have happened was what? a rearrangement. Does that make sense to everybody? All that could have happened is a rearrangement. When you eat, right? Say today you had breakfast. Okay? Maybe you say say you had string hoppers, string hoppers and some some gravy. You had that. <coughs> After you put it into your mouth, <coughs> excuse me. After you put the string hoppers into your mouth, we seal it. Nothing else can go in. And then it comes out the other end. But do you get string hoppers out the other end? No. What you get is feces. So if nothing else could have gone in, and there was no other way for anything to come out, and so the only way that comes out, you get stools or feces. The only thing that could have happened is rearrangement. Now, of course, you have the gastric juices and you have the bile and you have all the other things that that are on the inside. But they themselves were products of the things that you ate. You know, you are what you eat. You know, any, any good doctor would say, you are what you eat. So the things that you put in through your mouth is what makes you. So, you know, the bile that is inside you, the gastric juices that are inside you, the acid that's inside you, All of that was once what you put in through your mouth. So all that could have happened internally is a transformation. Just as what's happening here. When the butterfly laid eggs, okay, when the butterfly laid eggs, ladies and gentlemen, there was everything that was needed to make a butterfly out of it. Because the butterfly doesn't lay eggs and then go feed the butterfly, the the, the baby butterfly, not the baby butterfly, it's a larva. After the butterfly has laid eggs, it flies away. So everything to make a butterfly is contained within that egg. When a when oh, okay when a when a chicken, when a hen lays an egg, everything that needs that is needed to make a baby chicklet come out and hatch out of that egg is contained within that. But if you split if you cracked open that egg on day one, what do you get? <laughs> what? Half boiled egg. Or something that would resemble that. There is no chicken in there. But leave it enough time, what happens inside? Transformation. Because nothing else goes in and nothing comes out. If nothing goes in and nothing comes out, but a different form you see at the end of it, then only one thing could have happened. What could have happened? Transformation. That is anicca. All there is is a configuration of matter and energy. This is what's happening here. When the butterfly laid those eggs, everything that was needed to make a butterfly out of that was within that egg. All the nutrients, right, all the elements, all the energy, all of that was in there. Perhaps, you know maybe some energy came from the outside, maybe maybe perhaps uh, you know, the uh, sunlight, right? maybe, you know, the soap powder, sun, sunlight. Right? Maybe maybe some of that. Now I think the lava it feeds, does it not? It feeds on uh, it feeds on leaves and so on. So, but but once it goes into the cocoon, okay. Let's take that stage. Once it goes into the cocoon, nothing goes in and nothing comes out because in that period of gestation, no other change happens. Nothing goes in, nothing comes out. This is a a closed system. In that closed system, what happens is an internal transformation. That transformation transforms these elements that are inside this cocoon into this creature which you wouldn't be able to imagine the butterfly came from a cocoon how did the lava become a butterfly almost unimaginable but that is what a transformation can do so this is the understanding of anicca that we need to get to what you are is what you eat because you have the ability, not you as in you as yourself, right? There's an ability within each of these bodies to transform whatever goes through the mouth into the structures that you are right now. That ability is inbuilt. Let's say that is your DNA, that is your coding. When you eat a carrot, you don't have a carrot sticking out of your shoulder. That carrot transforms because actually what you're eating is not a carrot. That's the thing. What you're eating is, are the elements in a certain configuration? It takes a certain shape. We can call it a carrot. So what is the difference between a carrot and a tomato then? There's no difference. There's no difference except for the difference in configuration, the difference in arrangement. Now, this is where we say these are manifestations, not separations. A carrot is just a tomato rearranged. Does that make sense? A carrot is just a tomato rearranged. So what is a tomato then? A carrot rearranged. What is your nose then? A carrot rearranged. So what is a carrot then? Your nose rearranged. (coughs) When you're dead and gone, what do we do to the body? We bury it, right? Or we cremate it. Hmm? And then you become, you go back to nature. And then what does nature do with you? It uses you to make more carrots. Onions, potatoes, tomatoes, apples, cherries, strawberries. To feed people like you. So this is a cycle. It is a cycle because all there is is rearrangement. What nature does is it rearranges everything that it has. So the water in the sea becomes water that falls from the sky, which is simply a rearrangement. It's just rearrangement of stuff. Now, I know you'll be keen enough to tell me, don't scientists already understand this? Some answer. what you're telling me is nothing new? Scientists understand this stuff. So why did we need the Buddha to explain this phenomenon to us? Now, that is not the phenomenon I'm trying to explain to you. This is just fact. You learn this for, for science at school. What I'm trying to explain is, of course, you know, it was not the Buddha who said the caterpillar goes on to become a butterfly. Way before he came into the world, caterpillars became butterflies. What a scientist doesn't understand is that this manifestation... He cannot perceive as a manifestation. A scientist in their mind will perceive this as the life cycle of a butterfly. In other words, what they'll say is, it is the caterpillar that went on to become a butterfly. So the caterpillar, when it was the caterpillar, was a fixed caterpillar. It was a caterpillar. But what we know is, see, this bouquet is only a bouquet in your mind. It's not a bouquet now, it's not a bouquet now either. It was never a bouquet. Out here, there was never a bouquet. It was only in your mind that this union, this configuration, you perceived as a bouquet. Coming back here, in the cocoon, all there was were elements in a certain arrangement. That arrangement changed that configuration changed, that structure changed. But you can't help perceiving, because this, this happens internally, you can't help perceiving that this is more than just a mere manifestation. You perceive that there is this object actually there, this entity actually is there. So a caterpillar is actually there, a fixed caterpillar. I don't know how much this word fixed really sinks with you. What do I, I'm trying to get across a meaning that is more than fixed, but still struggling for words here. You see here an entity, a fixed entity. This is a unit, a unit of existence. Whereas all there is, is just matter held together with energy. This is just matter held together with energy. Imagine if I had a rubber band in my hand. An elastic band, okay? Now I could I could make it in different shapes, couldn't I? But just by uh, rotating my fingers or rather, you know, shaping my fingers, right? So if I had a rubber band and I held it like that, I wish I had one here right now. If I had a rubber band and held it like that, what shape would you see? Hmm? A triangle, you'd see a triangle, right? Now. If I put in another finger, just like that, into the rubber band, now what would you see? A square. Is it not the same rubber band? It is, but now it's a different arrangement. What happened when I put in that finger there? Added energy. This is another force acting on that rubber band, right? In other words, there's energy acting on it. So with additional energy uh, added to it, Now the shape changes. That's why one of those days we call them shape shifters, if you remember. They shift their shapes, they shift their arrangements. It's arrangements that keep shifting. Meaning the triangle never existed. If the triangle was there, if the triangle was there independent of the forces, then I could take my fingers out, away, and the triangle would still exist. But that is not how you get the triangle. The triangle can only manifest for as long as there's energy acting on it and keeping it in that shape, in that structure, in that in that order. You add another force, and now you say it's a square, it's a rectangle. If you kept if if I had say I don't have enough fingers, but if if I had more. I could put in a finger at each point along the rubber band and now you get a circle, a perfect circle. But that is because of the energies acting on it. So again, going back to the carrot that you ate this morning, it takes that shape because of the energy that's acting on it at that moment in time. How did it become your your nose? How did it become a strand of hair on your head? How did it become your fingernails? You know, as parents, if you know either yourselves or you as children of good parents, have you not heard? You know, eat this for better eyesight. Eat this for 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 better hair. Eat this for you know to to grow taller. Huh? Eat this to be fair. <laughs> you know, we've we've all heard this from our parents, right? What 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 do you need carrots for? Eyesight or fair? Huh? To be fair. Huh? What do you eat uh, what, potatoes for? Everything had some reason why we had to eat it. Anything that we didn't like to eat, my you know, parents would have why you would eat it. You would have to eat it. For better this, better that. Okay? So how, how is it that you can eat a carrot and become fair? Are carrots fair? I mean, as a child, that question should come into your mind, right? Eat carrots and you become fair, but carrots aren't fair; they're orange. How do you become fair by eating carrots? Or they'd say, uh, say eat. ah uh, oh. let's say eat. Uh, what what else did your parents ask you to eat when you were younger? Go to color. Hmm? Eat go to color and become what? Uh, better eyesight, uh, better eyesight, okay. What, what can Gotukala see? Does it have eyes? If Gotokala doesn't have eyes, how can eating Gotukala give you better eyesight? See, she was giving you a lesson in Anicca. <laughs> if, if only we paid enough attention, which we just didn't have the wisdom to see it that way then. See, how does Gotukala give you better eyesight? Gota gives you better eyesight because in our bodies we have the ability to transform whatever comes, in, comes our way, comes through this hole that is in the, in the middle of our faces, into an arrangement that is essential for the, for the body. Now, Gotu Kala itself will have certain, certain nutrients, right? perhaps that you wouldn't get from eating a bar of chocolate. See, now there are sweets, they say, if you eat sweets, you you put on, right? So sweets meaning sugar. Is sugar fat? No, but it's fattening, isn't it? Sugar isn't fat, but it's fattening. I mean, a, a, a grain of sugar is what, you know, it's tiny. That's not fat, but it's fattening. In other words... When you put it into this structure, this body has a way of transforming things. It can rearrange things to do whatever it wants to do. So when you put sugar in, the body starts working on it. There's a a coding that happens in there. There's a coding that, there's a blueprint if you like. Whatever you put into this, there's a blueprint that determines how they're going to be rearranged. Essentially, ladies and gentlemen, this is just a, a machine that rearranges. It can't produce anything. You can't make anything, so the stools that you drop into the, in the morning, that is not something that the body has made, it's simply something that the body has rearranged. It's taken whatever was given to it, rearranged it and out the other door. That's all that happens. When you put in air, oxygenated air, the deoxygenated air comes out. The body doesn't produce that, it just rearranges. So when the air molecules, the oxygen goes into the, into the cells, you know, through your hemoglobin, it goes into the cells and there's the mitochondria that start working on it, right? And then there are chemical reactions that take place. And, you know, it's the same oxygen that is converted to carbon dioxide. With some carbon that comes from somewhere, you know, all that happens inside is rearrangement. Otherwise, where did the carbon dioxide come from? This is rearrangement. So it can take the carbon from maybe the food that you eat and the oxygen, that came, uh, the, the oxygen that came in from the air that you took in, right? Combine the two of them together, you get carbon dioxide, push it out. So there's all sorts of rearrangement that goes on inside the body and everywhere. This is a rearrangement. Everything you see here is a rearrangement. Scientists talk about recycling. Recycling is possible because rearrangement is possible. If rearrangement is possible, then we must come to the conclusion that nothing is fixed. In other words, all things are simply a temporary structure or a temporary arrangement of matter and energy. Scientists know this, but what they can't perceive is that they are manifestations. They perceive that they are fixed things. Fixed entities. In fact, see now, take yourself for a a second. Right? Before you started listening to the Dhamma, before you started listening to the Dhamma, did you ever, did you ever feel that you are a manifestation? Did you ever feel that? No you always felt that I was an individual, right? I'm an individual, I'm an entity, I'm a being. Today you sense the sense, you, you, you know that the sense of self is only a sense. You know that the self is not an entity, it's only a self, Sorry, beg your pardon, it's only, a, it's only a perception, it's only a sense, it's only a perception. And that it's the, it's the creation of the mind when the mind perceives things incorrectly, Right? This is the mind going into panic mode, the mind going into crazy mode, into uh, lunacy mode, and the mind cre- creates this hallucination almost. right? And then you begin to feel that you are a self. Today you know this. But before you had an understanding of Rupa Vedana, Sanya, Sankara and Vinya, before you had an understanding of how the mind works and how the mind is simply an object that perceives, you never thought that this self was a perception. You thought the self was me. And I perceive things is what you said. When you, saw this, when you saw this, if you saw this flower before you listened to the Dhamma, you would have said, I can see a flower. Today you can say, the flower is perceived and at the same time, I am also perceived. I perceive or the mind perceives that it is me who is seeing the flower. At one point, you know, in your practice, the flower will be perceived but you will not perceive a, a, a person or an entity that is seeing the flower. And that is your arahanthood at that point. But for that to happen, first you need to understand that it is not you who's perceiving it. That has to come through knowledge initially. And then after that, you begin to internalize that through your practice. See, so wherever you look, whether you look up here or you, you know, it's a bouquet of flowers, or you look at yourself, all there is, are manifestations and not separations. Rupa, Vedana, Sanya, Sankar, and Vinyana. <clears throat> Rupa, Vedana, Sanya, Sankar, and Vinyana are themselves manifestations. They're not separations either. Because the Buddha explains how Rupa comes into being. Yeah. So he talks about avidya, tanha, kamma and These are the five components, these are the five ingredients that give rise to Rupa. Meaning Rupa is not a fixed thing. Meaning Rupa is just a, a manifestation. Just imagine if we had <clears throat> if we had a bunch of lights, okay uh, bulbs that that were colored a certain that had a certain color, or you could, you could take white light and, and stick a, a colored film over it, right? And then and then project it onto onto a surface. Say on this whiteboard, I project, uh, say, blue light. And then from the other side, I project yellow light. What would you see in the middle? Likely green, right? Maybe green. Let's say those two colors combine to, get, to give you green. Now, you see, I'm not projecting a green light, am I? What I am projecting is a a blue light and a yellow light. But the two of them on the same surface give you the impression that there's a green light there. That green light is a manifestation. It is an effect of the causes. Everything is an effect of causes. That is why they say it's a cause and effect principle. All things are an effect of causes. Rupa is an effect of causes. This, this bouquet, this bouquet is an effect of causes. Take away the causes and you no longer have the effect. It is simply a manifestation. This is not a fixed bouquet. If this were a fixed bouquet, you can't add flowers to it. You can't take flowers away from it. See, you can leave the bouquet and just take one flower away. How was that possible? If you had all this together, If this was a bouquet and it always came like this, if it always went like this, if it had to go places like this, you would not be able to take one flower of it away. All or none would be how it would be. It would be a case of all or none, but it's not. You can have parts of it. How is it that you can have parts of it? Because it was never a whole. It was always the parts. (laughs) Does that make sense? It was always the parts, there is nothing here that is greater than the sum of its parts. So it's wrong to say that the whole is greater than the sum of its parts, because it's not. All there is, is the sum of its parts. Take out the parts and you have nothing. Put the parts back together again, it's just the parts. It's just the sum of the parts, that's all there is. But we perceive that there is something beyond, something more, than the sum of these parts. We perceive a hole and that hole is the bouquet. There is no bouquet here. But conventionally we, we can say this is a bouquet because conventionally we need names. You can't call that a butterfly because a biologist would study a butterfly differently to how they might study a caterpillar. You can't use a caterpillar for the pollination of plants. But you can use a caterpillar, sorry, you can use a butterfly for that. So when scientists want to study how a butterfly works, there's no good, it's no good looking, studying how a caterpillar works or how the larva works or how the eggs work. These are simply different stages, different arrangements. Now, if I were to say, this caterpillar goes on to become a tiger, you don't accept that, do you? You'd say that's madness. Swami Nasa, the caterpillar doesn't go to become a tiger, the caterpillar becomes a butterfly. Shall I explain to you how the caterpillar becomes a tiger? There's a butterfly. A lizard comes and eats the butterfly. Hmm? Or a gecko catches the butterfly. Then the rat catches the gecko. The cat catches the rat. Okay? Then there's a monitor, not the class monitor, the monitor catches the cat and eats the cat, right? And then the tiger catches the monitor. Now what has the tiger just eaten? The caterpillar. So in two weeks' time, the, the, the tiger will have a new whisker. What was that uh, uh, two weeks ago? The caterpillar. See, the caterpillar has become... The tiger, or the whisker. So in the life cycle of a caterpillar, shouldn't you have a tiger? Shouldn't you have a tiger? In the life cycle of a larva, shouldn't you have a leopard? In the life cycle of a butterfly, shouldn't you have an elephant? You ought to. In other words, you know, these are not life cycles, but they're you know, more like life nets. Everything is connected. This is just one, you know, this is just one perspective. Answer this question for me. Think about it and answer this question for me. Does every caterpillar go on to become a butterfly? Do they? Do all caterpillars become butterflies? No. Some caterpillars become what? Tigers. Some caterpillars become cats, some become elephants, some become rabbits. Now, don't write this for science. But a scientist would say no, a caterpillar becomes a butterfly. Hmm? Some caterpillars become human beings, some caterpillars become snakes and reptiles. In the life cycle of a caterpillar, you can get absolutely anything out of it. So, it's, you can't say that this caterpillar always becomes a butterfly. What you can say is, maybe a caterpillar might become a butterfly, but it might also go on to become a tiger. It might become an elephant. It might become a rat. It might become a tree. It might become the moon. Can it not? Shall I tell you how a caterpillar can become the moon? It can become part of the moon. Because the caterpillar well the the gecko got the caterpillar, yeah, and the cat got the gecko. Then uh say uh a leopard got the no wait uh, who got the gecko? The cat got the gecko, right? Then uh, the the cat died, right? The cat died. Then the cat went. They died in the in 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 the garden, right? There grew some grass, and the rabbit ate the grass, and then the rabbit ran away into the forest, and the rabbit dry, dry, died, and then that went on to become grass again, and then came along uh, a deer. And the deer ate the grass and someone went and caught the deer and then they skimmed the deer. They put the deer to the butcher and then you had deer meat, not deer meat, but deer meat, venison. Okay. And then someone went to the shop, he bought it, he ate it and lo and behold, he's an astronaut. So he gets on a rocket, he goes to the moon and once he's on the moon, He feels he needs to go to the toilet, right? So now he he goes and takes a dump. Where? On the moon. See, the caterpillar has gone to become the moon. Nothing is fixed. All there is are arrangements of things. So who gives you the authority then to say that this is my hand or my face, my head, my nose, my body, and this is me? these are simply arrangements these are simply structural arrangements because of the because of the energies acting on it right now in any moment this can disperse give it the right conditions in the right environment you can just you know disperse and you can disintegrate give it give it the right energy it can transform into anything else. So you are not fixed entities. This is not your hand to say this is my hand, but you, you perceive it that way. All you can say is this is a structure in this moment in time, and I choose to call it a hand. We have come to a convention and call it a hand. And you know, they say you can call it your hand, but again, it's only a convention. It is not, it is not fixed. So all things are like that. All things are like that. What I want you to do is to start to perceive it in that way, you know, this is knowledge, but your perception needs to go beyond that. <clears throat> you, need to, you need to step, you need to go one step further than simply understand this and you need to begin to comprehend this. So seeing this as a science is fine, but scientists can do that also. What I need you to do, ladies and gentlemen, is to internalize this. Actually see that this is what's going on here. When you look at yourself in the mirror, see if you can, in your mind's eye, see if you can perceive yourself as simply the coming together of lots of parts in in a certain order. See if you can look at yourself in the mirror and, and relate the story of how the carrot that you ate yesterday has become... Become you. See if you, can, if you can tell yourself that story. And if you can, then ask yourself, how, what authority do I have to call myself or call the, the face that I see my face? How, why is it a face? Is it a face and nothing else? Or is it simply the arrangement that it, is, that it is right now? It's just the arrangement. I'll tell you what happens when you begin to see and perceive the world in this way. Your sense of belonging starts to dispel. You no longer sense, a, no longer sense a, this feeling of belonging. Now, for some this might feel quite, you know, uh, fearful, frightening. That is if you don't understand the Dhamma. Because people like to feel belong, don't they? I like to belong to someone, to something. That's when people start to feel lonely. Right? When you feel lonely, when you feel you don't belong to someone or to something, something bigger than you. If you don't understand the Dhamma and just take what I say superficially, then you might also feel that way. I don't feel belong to anybody. To anybody right? I just feel so lonely. I feel like nobody's there for me. See, the problem is that nob- it's not that nobody's there for you. The problem is that you feel that you are you. That is the problem. The other day we were having a discussion, um, and I asked someone the question, why is it that that an Arahant cannot engage in theft? Now we we know that an Arahant cannot engage in theft, theft, right? So I asked the question, why is it that that an Arahant cannot engage in theft? Is it because an Arahant is just so virtuous that he would not feel that he should steal? Why does it not engage in theft? Absolutely. Because it doesn't sense a o- sense of ownership. It doesn't perceive ownership. What is theft if ownership does not exist? How can you steal if, some, if nothing belongs to anybody? How can you steal? When you fill your lungs with air, do you feel like you're stealing something? Why not? Because the air doesn't belong to anybody. In fact, it belongs to everybody. So, that's that, therefore, you don't feel that you're stealing it. Yeah? But if you took something and walked away with it, you'll feel that you have stolen it because you know that this belongs to someone. You know that this belongs to someone. <laughs> when the water falls off the sky, who does it belong to? Nobody. But if it falls into your well, now who does it belong to? Who gave you the right to say that the water in my well belongs to me? So if your neighbor hmm, takes a stroll into your garden, takes your bucket, and takes or your, your your bucket or his bucket, you know, puts it into the well and uses him start… <laughs> getting water from the well, without your permission. Hmm? How might you feel? Today you'll think, ah yes, what a great opportunity for us to engage in some merits. That's you speaking now. I'm talking about, you know, the old you. What, how might you have felt? You would have stopped him and you would have charged him with theft. Wouldn't you? You would have said, how dare you walk into my garden. Whose garden? How dare you walk into my garden and take water from my well, because this is whose water? My water. But when it fell from the sky, it didn't belong to you. The moment it touched your well, now it's yours. How so? How so? You can extend that concept to anything. When we all landed on this earth, the earth belonged to everybody. And then you thought you wanted to settle down. You agreed with something. This is your great-great-great-great-grandfather. Okay, this is what he did. Hmm? I'll have you know, this is what he did. Your great-great-great-great-great-grandfather had a chat with another, uh, this man's great-great-great-great-great-grandfather. Okay, and then they came to the agreement that you sit on that side, I'll sit on this side. How about we put a fence between us? And they both agreed, let's put a fence. So they drew up a fence. And when they put that fence up, they agreed, let's call this part my part and let's call that part your part. You know, they had to come to an agreement about that, meaning it's a convention. If something is an absolute truth, who must you come to an agreement with? Hmm? nobody when you got married what did you do you came to an agreement right till death do us part and then you signed a piece of paper so that the authorities would accept you as husband and wife see again it's a convention but it gave you you thought the right to call someone yours just as it gave you the right to call that land yours But then from that point forward, it passed down from generation to generation, from generation to generation, and then their great-great-great-great-great-grandchildren, that is you today, believe that that land is my land. It came to me from my ancestors, so it's my land. So if someone trespasses, right, you will charge them of trespassing. You'll ring the police, you'll take them to court you'll sue them, because they have now stepped foot on your land. But when we all landed on this earth, it didn't belong to anybody. Nothing belongs to anybody, ladies and gentlemen, because there is no anybody to belong to. It is simply something that you perceive. That is why an arahant cannot steal. What is karma? Volition is karma. Volition is karma. In other words, your intention is karma. So if intention is karma and theft is a karma, then you have to be able to have that intention, right? For that to be theft. So if you can't have the intention of theft, is it theft? It's not theft. So for there to be theft, you have to be able to have the intention of theft. To have the intention of theft, you have, to be, you have to have the concept of belonging. Otherwise, it's not theft. The sense of belonging does not come without the sense of separation. Only things that are separate belong. When land was separated, then it belonged. When water separated, then it belonged. When the air is separated, then it belongs. You can say this is the Chinese airspace. Oh, this is the, the Sri Lankan airspace, you know, belongs. Now it belongs. The Indian Ocean belongs to whom? The Indians. Belongs. The Atlantic Ocean, hmm? that belongs to the Atlantic people, whoever they are. It belongs. So if you went into the, into the great oceans, right, and you got a sample of water from the Indian Ocean, and you took some water from, what is the neighboring ocean? That is the Atlantic Ocean, is it? Where are the geographers? Atlantic Ocean? You still go to school, right? No. <laughs> huh? Pacific Ocean, thank you. Some of us still remember our geography. So the Pacific Ocean, right? If you took a sample of water from the border, Right, right from the border, okay? This side of the border and that side of the border. What is, so what is Indian about the Indian Ocean? And what is Pacific about the Pacific Ocean? Tell me. Hmm? What is so Indian about the Indian Ocean? And what is so Pacific about the Pacific Ocean? Is the Indian water more spicy? No, but if a foreign ship travels into the Indian Ocean right, <clears throat> then one of the countries in that part of the world will be you know they'll have a they'll have a field trip out of it like, why are you why are you trespassing into our waters without our permission see. Sense of belonging. To belong, it has to separate. To separate, you have to draw a line somewhere. But all of this seems so natural because you feel that you are separate from somebody else. You you feel, you know, as children of God, we are all the same, but we feel that we are separate. Separate and then we say we are children of God. In other words, we are separate children of God. I mean, nothing can be more ironical. Those two concepts cannot cannot live together. You are either children of God, meaning we are all the same, or we are separate. Separation is simply a perception. So you can't say, I am a child of God and so is He. That makes no sense. Because we are all one. This is just a configuration of matter and energy. That is all there is. The only difference between Rupa and Vedana, Vedana and Sanya, Sanya and Sankara, Sankara and vijnana, is simply a manifestation. It's just a configuration. Because the Sanya that appears in this mind today can tomorrow be a tomato. Because it becomes a Rupa. It's like the rubber band, the elastic band. Whichever way you exert forces on it, it takes that shape. So change the force, change the shape. It's the same thing that happens with you. <clears throat> when you eat, you, you take in energy, that is chemical energy. So energy has the potential for change, doesn't it? That is what energy is. Energy is work, right? So e- energy is the Greek word for work. That mm-hmm. is what energy is. So what it does, it is it it, it has the ability to change, changes something. So your configurations change, that is all there is. What we need to do is get our head around this concept and begin to internalize that and perceive that. So for that we contemplate on the Dhamma. How do we stop transcending the panchaskanda to the Panchupadana skandha? How do we stop at manifestation? <laughs> Excuse me. Manifestation is all there is. We just need to perceive what there is. Or we just need to perceive what is there. It's when you, you know, that is what ignorance is. The very simplest answer to this question is, just come here and listen to the service. That is is the simplest answer I can give. Because where it all goes wrong is because of ignorance. How does one quell their ignorance? By listening to words of wisdom. It doesn't have to come from anyone in particular. It just has to be words of wisdom. The Buddha discovered that wisdom. And then he preached it. And then from there on, the lineage that followed, they've taken the message of the Buddha. So all we have to do is just listen. And once we listen, we understand what we understand, we begin to comprehend what we comprehend, we put into practice. And that practice becomes a realization. Last question for you before we conclude for the day. We'll talk more about this in future. Last question for you. It's a very discernment for the Anagārika Mahathya's yesterday. (coughs) And something came up and I thought I should share it with you. (coughs) What did the Buddha realize under the Bodhi tree? Give me your answers. No, not if you were here yesterday. Very good. What else? This is a bit of an unfair question because I need you to give me a specific answer, and I'm asking you to give me answers, and I know they'll all be all be true. So it's a bit of an unfair question. Let's see if anyone can attempt, or at least come close to <clears throat> excuse me, come close to the answer that I'm trying to get out of you. What did the Buddha realize under the Bodhi tree? The answer is in the question. That's a bit of a hint. What did the Buddha realize under the Bodhi tree as he attained Buddhahood? Madam? That he? That he? Well done. He realized that he has always been the Buddha. That is what he realized. He realized that he has always been a Buddha that he didn't have to try to become a Buddha, he was always a Buddha. What do I mean by that? So aren't there Bodhisattvas and (laughs) and Buddhas? Are they one and the same? What is the Buddha? The Buddha is a mind without defilements. The Buddha is what is. All you can become is non-Buddhas, because you are all Buddhas. Right? So what the Buddha realized was, I was always a Buddha. In vain, I tried to become one. Because a mind which arises, and if all there is is Rupa, and Vedana, and Sanya, and Sankara, and Vinyana, what is that? That is the Buddha. That is the Buddha. So isn't that what had always happened with him throughout the entirety of Sansara? So wasn't he always a Buddha? he was always a buddha he was trying to become a buddha so he gave up and in giving up in trying to become a buddha huh he became one that is why it's called a realization it's not a finding you don't go look anywhere and you know where's buddha you don't it's not like that you realize that you have always been one that is a realization, right? A realize for a realization to happen, you don't you don't need to go and find it. You don't need to go to the shop and buy it. You don't need to go and look it look for it under you know under a sofa or anything. It's just always there. That is why it's called a realization. It's always there. It has always been there. That's when you realize. So you realize you are all Buddhas. That is what the Buddha did under the Bodhi tree. He realized he had always been a Buddha. Having realized that. He stopped his effort to become one. This quake came up when the other day someone was helping me with something, and I asked him, "What are you trying to do?" Because at the monastery, from time to time, we ask people, "You know, what are you trying to do?" Right? So whether you're, you know, working in the kitchen or you're pulling, getting some fetching some water or washing a robe, we always ask, "What are you trying to do?" And the answer should typically be, "I'm trying to, I'm trying to become an Arahant." Okay. Well, I'm trying. I'm in the pro, I'm in the process of creating arahants. That's what we do. So I asked this gentleman, "What are you trying to do?" And he said, "Swamins, I'm trying to earn enough merits so that one day I can become an anagarika, and then I can go on to become an arahant." And I said, "That's what's wrong, sir. Stop trying to become an anagarika and stop trying to attain nibbana, and you will be in nibbana. When you try to attain nibbana, you are hoping of a nibbana to come in the future." In your hope for a Nibbana tomorrow, you become blind to the Nibbana there is right now. Nibbana is in the present moment. Nibbana is here. Nibbana is here now. So stop trying to find Nibbana. If you are home and you set out to go home, where will you go? I'll ask the question again. If you are home, and you set out to go home, where will you go? Anywhere but home. Yeah? Because you are home. So you will go anywhere but home. So if you are already in Nibbana, and you try to find Nibbana, or if you try to get to Nibbana, where will you go? Anywhere but Nibbana. Now then, there was a very intelligent question that came soon after, because this is what we always talk about and Guru always tells us to do this. You know, make a resolve to attain Nibbana and engage in merits. He always says this, doesn't he? So the question came soon after from the audience. But, 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 Swami Hanra said, shouldn't we engage in merits and resolve to attain Nibbana, this Adhishtana and all that, right? Isn't that what we should be doing? I said, yes. Resolve to see the Nibbana right now. Resolve to see the Nibbana, that is, and engage in the deed. Engage in the deed. Serve meals. Wash a robe. Give someone a cup of water, maybe a cup of tea. Do a sermon. Help someone, usher someone to a seat. Turn on the fan, switch it off. Do whatever. Resolve to see the Nibbana, that is rare right now. Not the Nibbana that these merits will one day help you to attain. (laughs) in two years' time, in six years' time, in ten years' time, or just before you die. Because then you have missed the plot. Nibbana is not a promise for tomorrow. Nibbana is what is today. It is here now. So don't fool yourself with the promise of Nibbana. Because it's not a promise. It's it's here, it's a present. You have it. It's there now. Your resolve should be to try and realize it right now. See it right now. See that it is there right now. When you begin to see that, you will stop trying to attain Nibbana. You will stop trying to be happy when you realize that now is happy. Happy is here. Happy is in the present moment. So all this talk about awareness, right? And uh, mindfulness, right? Mindful awareness, there's a lot of talk about that here, there and everywhere these days. Do that be mindfully aware that you are right now in Nibbana. Because when you, when you become aware of that, you stop trying to attain Nibbana. If you try to attain Nibbana, you won't. There's only one thing in this world. If you look for it, you will lose it. If you stop looking for it, you will find it. What is that? Nibbana or happiness. If you go looking for it, you will lose it. If you stop looking for it, you will find it. Money is not like that. If you go looking for it, you will find it. Water is not like that. If you go looking for it, you will find it. Land is not like that. If you go looking for it, you will find it. A job is not like that. If you go looking for it, you will find it. But understand please that Nibbana is a completely different beast. It's a different animal. You can't go looking for it and find it. You have to stop looking for it. And then you find it because you realize it is what has always been. <laughs> does this make sense? I hope it does. I really hope it does. If it didn't make sense, it's fine. Just carry on doing your merits in the hope that one day you will attain Nibbana. That's okay. There's no harm in that. Honestly, there's no harm in that because eventually you will understand what I try to explain to you today. If at least you... Strive for Nibbana for in in you know strive for Nibbana that will come to you tomorrow. At least if you strive for that, then one day you will realize that Nibbana was always with you. It's not somewhere you need to go and get or fetch from. So when will you become a Buddha? When you stop trying to become one. So strive trying to become a Buddha and be be a Buddha. You can't try to be a Buddha and be a Buddha at the same time. So stop trying to become a Buddha and you will all be Buddhas. And it goes the same for happiness. Stop trying to be happy and you shall be happy. If you try to be happy, you can never be happy. Right. right, let's do the transfer of merits and conclude for today. <coughs> Let us all take a moment then to transfer the merits that we have all acquired by making offerings to the infinite virtues of the noble triple gen, listening to the Dhamma and engaging in various militarities today. So first and foremost, let us remind ourselves how incredibly fortunate we are to be in receipt of the Lord Buddha's teaching. And with immense gratitude, let us take the moment to transfer these merits to the bhikkhus and bhikkhunis upasikas and upasikas who since time immemorial have protected and preserved the sublime teachings of the Buddha and passed it down to the noble, to the generations of the noble lineage in the form of the Sripitaka, which is thankfully Available to us today to study, understand, and comprehend the Dhamma. Let us also take a moment to transfer this message to all the members of the Mahasangha present throughout the world, including the chief prelates of all of the chapters who dedicated their lives to the noble path and have committed themselves towards the betterment of all sentient beings. Let us take a moment to remind ourselves that amongst them are the monks and nuns resident in your local temples and nunneries who've always been by your side through thick and thin Kamra nosha Kamrain Let us take a moment to transfer this message to my teacher, Guru Samin Mohanse, as well as all the monks resident at the monastery and the Anagārika and Anagārika communities attached to the monastery. Let us take a moment to transfer these merits to those who make great efforts to disseminate the teachings of the Buddha, be that by transliterating these talks, sharing the matter out with others or inviting others to join them, and may by the power of these merits, if any of them have been born in the woful plains, they redeem themselves and be born in the blissful plain. May they abstain from the unmeritorious deeds, fulfill the meritorious deeds, fulfill the noble late fall path, and may they all attain the supreme bliss of nibbāna. Sadhu, sadhu, sadhu. Let us take a moment to transfer these merits to our devotees and friends of the monastery, who, for the sake of merits, to help them attain the supreme bliss of Nibbana, continue to sustain the Mahasangha. This includes everyone from those of you who contribute to the construction of the monastery, to those who provide the Mahasangha with shelter, arms, robes, and medicines, as well as those who pass on their know-how and their will wishes. <coughs> Let us take a moment to transfer these merits to all of them, and by the power of these merits, may they abstain from the unmeritorious deeds, fulfill the meritorious deeds, Fulfill the Noble Eightfold Path, and may they all attain the supreme bliss of nirvana. Sadhu, Sadhu, Sadhu. Let us also take a moment to transfer these maids to our mothers and fathers, husbands and wives, brothers and sisters, sons and daughters, grandparents, uncles, aunts, cousins, nephews, nieces, our elders, our friends and our acquaintances, employers and employees, and to all those who make great efforts to provide us with, with help, support and assistance, as and when possible and available to them, by the power of these merits, may they be healed of any physical and mental ailments and overcoming obstacles to their spiritual progress. May by the power of these merits, they abstain from the unmeritorious deeds, fulfill the meritorious deeds, fulfill the noble eightfold path, and may they all attain the supreme bliss of nibbana. Sadhu, sadhu, sadhu. Let us also take a moment to transfer these merits to the devas and brahmas, spirits and demons, primarily the Sakadeva, as well as all the numerous gods and deities who are committed to protect and fulfil the sum of Let us transfer these merits to our guardian deities who keep a watchful eye over us and keep us out of harm's way, and may by the power of these merits they prosper in divine power and wisdom. May they abstain from the unmeritorious deeds, fulfil the meritorious deeds, fulfil the noble eightfold path, and may they all attain the supreme bliss of nibbana. Sadhu, sadhu, sadhu. Let us also take a moment to transfer these merits to those who have passed away in our name, our ancestors and those who have predeceased us. May by the power of these merits, if any of them have been born in the woeful plains, they redeem themselves to be born in the blissful plain. By the power of these merits, may they abstain from the unmeritorious deeds, fulfill the meritorious deeds, fulfill the noble eightfold path, and may they all attain the supreme bliss of Nibbana. Sadhu, sadhu, sadhu. Let us also take a moment to transfer to the members of the armed forces, as well as the police force, those who sacrificed their lives for the peace and harmony of our nation. It is thanks to them that today we are able to practice in peace and harmony and fulfill our path to Nibbana. And therefore, may by the power of these merits, they, un, they abstain from the unmeritorious deeds, fulfill the meritorious deeds, fulfill the noble laid full path, and may they all attain the supreme bliss of Nibbana. Sadhu, sadhu, sadhu. It us also take a moment to transfer these merits to those who might have lost their lives in natural calamities such as tsunamis and earthquakes, landslides, pandemics, forest fires, blizzards, and so on. By the power of these merits, if any of them have been born in the world plains, they redeem themselves and be born in the blissful plain. May by the power of these merits they abstain from the unmeritorious deeds, fulfil the meritorious deeds, fulfil the noble eightfold path, and may they all attain the supreme bliss of Nirvana. Sadhu, sadhu, sadhu. And finally, may by the power of and blessings of all the merits we have acquired throughout the day, we be able to witness the advent of many hundreds of thousands of arahants on this blessed land. And finally, may by the power of these merits, you and I and everyone who's helped make this program a success become an arahant Mahanse, or an arahat teranin Mahanse in this very life itself and in the era. Of the Gautama Supreme Buddha itself. Sadhu Sadhu Sadhu. And the blessings of the Noble Triple Gem be with you all. And the members of the Mahasangha will now transfer their blessings to you all.
1: <clears throat>
0: <coughs>
1: Raga MOHA GINNEN NIDATM VAH NIBBAN PARAM SUKHAYAN SUKHITA TARA VETM VAH NIBBAN PARAM SUKHAYAN SUKHITA TARA VETM Mamda Siyalu Loka Siyalu Satnvayor Nibbana Param Sukhayan Sukhita Thar Aritmvah Nibbana Param Sukhayan Sukhita Thar Aritmvah Nibbana Parana Sukhaya Sukhita Tharagatmva Raga Gini Niveva Dvesha Gini Niveva Moha gini Nivan Sapa Labbeva Nivan Sapa Labbeva